Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, sunlight, MRI, and mercury. Joining us today is Mr. Craig Morris on Germany's energy switch. Also, we'll find out why the fugu is so deadly. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Groks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of freedom. <laughs> so is this like Operation Infinite Freedom or something? Freedom isn't free. <laughs> okay, so my turn. Here's the uh, animal fact for this week. All right, lay it on me. <laughs> so Charles, were you born with your mom standing up? You'd have to ask my mom that, and only if you don't value your, your life at all. I guess you don't even want to find out either, huh? I'm not sure how I got out. Okay, but... I want to go back in. <laughs> But academia is a womb enough, so I guess yeah. that's fine. So that's exactly how giraffes give birth to young by standing up. Well, most animals do, right? Right. And it turns out that even though they're very tall creatures, the babies that come out are already six foot tall, so oh, okay. they come out perfectly fine. Imagine they have a larger distance to fall, so then there might be more chance of catastrophic injury upon birth. I guess they position themselves so that the babies okay. be okay. Good for them. <laughs> and babies are resilient, too. You can drop them, and I don't know if you can kick them. <laughs> they have soft heads, right? Yeah. So I do have a real story, actually. Well, I, I'm just amazed by all animal facts that we're starting to get here. So <laughs> Hey, you know, it's like Discovery Channel. They got the animal planet. We've got the animal minute. Because <laughs> that's all we can afford on this show. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's a bit of an extravagance. <laughs> So this is actually a story here from Berkeley, Professor Alex Pines. Our good friend Alex Pines. <laughs> yes. So must involve NMR. In fact, you're very close. MRI. Or <laughs> even better. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is, just not so nuclear, I guess. Yeah. Well, they uh, took that out of there because uh, public perception that nuclear was somehow bad, right? Right. So that's why it was removed from the name in MRI. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we should ban nuclei. <laughs> So they've developed this little device, presumably it could be portable, and instead of using magnets, they use laser beams to look at the polarization of whatever they want to look at. And as a result, they can more or less get MRI images using this magnetometer. Sort of a handheld thing? Could be. The prototype's a bit bulkier, but so far they've been able to use it to look at the flow of water through microfluidic channels. So unfortunately, we're not going to get something like uh, those devices in Star Trek. Tricorders? Yeah, those tricorders that can just scan your body and look at everything. It's not quite the resolution, but Pine says it's probably could be a reliable method for uh, microfluidics, geology, and probably some cell biology. Well, good news for the Earth, bad news for us humans. <laughs> this is wonderful stuff, and it is from our very favorite journal. <laughs> I, I would expect nothing less from piece of work of this magnitude, the proceedings... Of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. Well, I think uh, all the water rights management experts might be interested in that device. Finding out where all the water is going, right? It's not going into our drinking supply. <laughs> no? What, is Colorado going to shut us off now? They very well might. <laughs> so this is actually a big problem. Water rights probably going to be a very big issue in the 21st century. And a group of researchers have actually been studying this to see just exactly what are the problems and what are the impending right. crises that might exist. Uh -huh. And so a recent study that was uh, carried out, it's a five-year study of global water resources. Mm -hmm. It's orchestrated by the International Water Management 
Management Institute in Colombo, Sri Lanka. They basically found that the situation is probably a little bit more dire than people are giving thought to. Are they focusing more on developing regions or are they focusing everywhere around the world? Pretty much everywhere. Although, obviously, developing regions, they're already experiencing shortages and scarcity. Mm-hmm. But saying even in developed areas, it's going to become a very important issue. Right. Especially out here in the West, where a lot of the water supplies are just rerouted rivers and such. So. Right, right. I think Colorado's been facing some problems with the snowpacks since, right. since the snow season gets shorter and shorter each year. And so, sooner or later, uh, I guess if they really need the water, they're not going to give it to California. <laughs> suggesting basically that uh, water rights management is going to be a tricky issue. It may be a balancing act between managing the water rights and cost to the environment. Hmm. So two different issues that might Mm -hmm. come up. It was a report released by the IWMI. So Charles, do you feel a little bit sleepy? Uh, perpetually. It's noontime, man. Uh, that's the best time of the day to sleep. So it turns out maybe you're not getting enough ambient light. Well, that's because I'm sequestered again down here in the dark dungeon of science. <laughs> I think actually half of the world is somehow sequestered in their little uh, dark offices. <laughs> right. So it turns out having natural light can have a huge impact on your physiology. And as we know, it does affect your circadian rhythm, heart rate, and hormone cycles, but what's been less known is how it could affect alertness and brain activity during the daytime. Hmm. So what Gilles van der Waal at the University of Legion Belgium did was he wanted to see what the effects were when people were exposed to a set amount of actual bright light from outside. And when they imaged their brains, they were not only more alert, but they were also responsive to the tasks that they were given. I think people have known that for quite some time. I mean, there's a specific nucleus in the brain called a suprachiasmatic nucleus, right. which is responsive uh, largely to the light and setting circadian rhythms. Right. And the classic case of seasonal affective disorder, which mm-hmm. is largely due, I think, to ambient light deficiencies during the winter months. I think what this research sort of affirms is that if you want to control drowsiness, you should spend more time outside. I, I think they have devices now where it'll simulate. simulate the lighting environments, so you can uh, put those on your eyes and <laughs> <laughs> enjoy, enjoy. This was actually published in the August 22 issue of Current Biology. You know, another great thing for getting a lot of sunlight when you're outdoors, forest fires. Forest fires? Yeah, you know, you burn off all the canopy cover and you Uh can see the sun. (laughs) It's a cycle, I guess. (laughs) But apparently that's not so good if you want to contain your mercury levels. Do these trees sequester mercury? A particular type of uh, forest called peatland. So peatlands are a particular type of boreal forest ecosystems, which have rich, thick organic soil layers that are very good at sequestering mercury. Mm -hmm. And it turns out during forest fires, the sequestered mercury might actually be released back into the atmosphere. So it's actually interesting research. It was done by ecosystem ecologist Merit Terteski and colleagues at Michigan State University. What they did is they basically measured the amount of mercury in historical burn areas and control areas. And they came to the conclusion that about 23.2 metric tons of mercury are released in such fires, which is about the same as were released in industries in North America. Wow. So nature is also a polluter. (laughs) I don't know, well, how these forest fires start, but if some of them are (laughs) man-made, then... So again, pretty large implications. The question is, of course, how far does this mercury travel? Mm -hmm. Does it get back into the food supply? This kind of thing. But certainly it's known that it's being emitted. One thing interesting that I learned was there's a group in Africa, and they're using bamboos to absorb toxic metals from Mm. the water stream. 
Um, it works very well. Oh, wow. Bamboo is really good at that? Yeah. It's also uh, one of the fastest growing trees, right? It so. is. Some people claim you can hear it grow, apparently up to like an inch or so a day. Imagine if I could do that. Then you'd be more powerful than we could possibly imagine. <laughs> Published in a recent edition of Geophysical Re And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, Mr. Craig Morris joins us to talk about Germany's implementation of renewable energy. So stay tuned. And what it means for the U.S. Back to Berkeley Grox. Well, last week, Mr. Kunstler described the long emergency of future disruptions in energy supplies and the consequences of climate change. The United States has historically been an innovator in technologies for renewable energies, including solar and wind. While federal spending to sustain these types of developments has dropped off in recent years, other countries have taken the ball and invested heavily. And though Germany has fewer resources than the United States, they have been able to achieve what many in the states here claim is not possible, a higher percentage of energy that is derived from renewable sources. Well, joining us today is Mr. Craig Morris, who will tell us a little bit about Germany's energy switch, their solution to lowering CO2 emissions. Yeah, uh, Mr. Morris, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm very glad to be with you. So you've written a very uh, insightful book, uh, Energy Switch. Could you uh, probably just summarize what it's about? Well, basically, um, I've been in Germany for about 14 years, but I'm from the States. And uh, this book is essentially a localization, is what you call it in the, in the uh, publishing industry, of uh, the German book that I wrote. It's a localization rather than a translation because it uh, doesn't just present the material all over again, but it also takes into account the background knowledge that uh, North American readers have or may not have the way it differs from what German readers um, what German readers know. Essentially what I do is I uh, sort of outline in uh, each of the chapters the potential future of each energy source. So uh, I don't only have renewables, although I do stress renewables. I also have a chapter on coal, natural gas, nuclear, and so forth. And I have a chapter on uh, efficiency and conservation, and I also have a chapter on uh, what has uh, come to be known as smart grids, which is uh, also demand management. In other words, uh, we're used to ramping up our power plants uh, when uh, demand for electricity increases, especially around noon, for instance. Um, and we may be reaching a point as renewables become more important, uh, and also uh, to to uh, counteract uh, the potential for blackouts, which is important for the states as well. Uh, we may have to have demand management, which means that we, at peak times, uh, we actually lower demand for electricity. You probably do have a, uh, a deep understanding of the German situation, and I was wondering if you could comment on uh, some of their recent uh, 
policy shifts, I understand uh, they've actually relaxed some of the uh, targets for um, for implementing renewables. Uh, do you have any comments about that? Uh, you, you've heard that they have lowered their targets? Or, or relaxed their deadlines for reaching them? Actually, from what I know, they set targets many years ago and they blew right past them. So I'm not exactly sure uh, what you're referring to. The EU as a whole, in fact, uh, set targets for the year 2010 and uh, in several sectors, for instance, in wind, uh, the EU has already met these targets. In, uh, at the end of 2005, these targets had already been met. Uh, you may be referring to um, the new government that came into power. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We had a government of the, let's say, left-of-center Social Democrats and the Green Party from 1998 up until 2005, the end of 2005. What we have now is a grand coalition of uh, the two main parties, so it's a a very uh, centrist uh, policy that we have now. But, and this will be interesting for American listeners, in the short term, energy policy has not even been touched. What they're working on right now is all sorts of other things like health care reform, but energy policy has not been changed at all. And it was scheduled to come up for a revision or a review, at least, in 2007. And that seems to be what they're, what they're sticking to for the time being. But, for instance, uh, the support for renewables and the uh, somewhat famous phase-out of nuclear power has, at least for the meantime, uh, been maintained. So you were talking about implementing some measures to better match the demand and supply for power. And particularly with wind, uh, one of the problems is that it's unpredictable when you're going to have a stronger or or a weaker um, power source. And I understand sometimes there's an excess where it has to be sold at a much lower rate to other countries. Um, How have they been able to manage some of these mismatches? Well, you're absolutely right that this is a a, uh, potential problem with wind. Um, I should point out that... um, it's really only a problem with wind, uh, and it's not so much a problem. It's not really even a problem with solar power for, for the following reason. Solar power peaks, generation peaks, uh, generally in the afternoon, and that's when we need most of the power. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you have with wind is indeed a problem, uh, or, or it can be. Uh, if you have a lot of wind in the middle of the night, then basically you don't have uh, too many people consuming electricity, so what do you do? Uh, and in certain parts of Germany and Denmark, uh, you have uh, situations where the coal plants and nuclear plants in uh, Germany have to be ramped down uh, drastically. These are basically policy issues that have to be uh, uh, discussed between all of the, of the market players. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to be, uh, uh, what Germany has basically decided is that renewables have priority, period. Uh, that means that the grid operators um, have to buy this power. Now, you have a, a different situation in the states where you have uh, power purchase agreements and um, the power companies, um, or sorry, the grid operators can actually say, okay, we will take a certain amount of power um, and not more than that, or maybe not at certain times. This is all negotiable. Uh, in Germany, the coal plants actually have to be ramped down, and nuclear plants have to be ramped down in the middle of the night if there, if there is excess power production from wind. But uh, these prices do not have to be absorbed by the operator. They can be passed on to the consumer. But all of this is really not uh, making power that much more expensive. Uh, this problem is, as I said before, it's basically just with wind. Biomass, for instance, uh, biomass plants can be turned on and off as need be. And um, 
so can geothermal. So it's really just a problem with wind, and it's um, not a problem every day, but it does happen a few times a year, yes. You, you know, what, what is your personal interest in this uh, field, in uh, you know, getting the public to understand uh, the issues with energy and uh, carbon emissions? Um, well, I think the main issue for me is why should Americans be interested in uh, knowing uh, what Germany has done? And the obvious response to that is that uh, Germany is the leader in solar and wind, and the EU is also uh, marching along fairly rapidly uh, with all renewables, including uh, wave energy. The United States has been dragging its feet, but historically the United States is actually a leader, or, or was once a leader, in almost all of these fields. And it's catching up right now in wind, and it has much greater potential than the EU overall anyway. Um, I believe South Dakota itself has enough wind to power most of the U.S., isn't that right? <laughs> Uh, there are some kind, some theoretical statistics like that. Those are nice little um, little numbers that uh, make an idea clear. But of course, in the real world, um, it's 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 not a very good comparison. Right. You wouldn't right. want to have South Dakota full of windmills <laughs> and have all that power being uh, transported across the country. Yeah, that, that, that uh, is also yes, a problem. <laughs> Right. But, uh, of course, the Dakotas are, uh, for instance, North Dakota has uh, more wind potential than, than all of Germany. Um, it's actually not much smaller than all of Germany, but it has far more potential. And so the question then becomes, um, why, has, why has Germany, this cloudy country, why is it a leader in photovoltaics? Why is Germany a leader in wind when Great Britain, for instance, which is much smaller in surface area than Germany, Great Britain has much more potential? Uh, and the reason is simply because, um, I guess after doing decades of research into fusion, Germans have basically decided that uh, the best bet for future energy sources is going to be a mixture of renewables. And they're putting uh, most of their money in that basket. And they're just banking on the inevitability of a switch to renewables. Perhaps we should also keep in mind that um, although Germany has great coal resources, it doesn't really have much else. It doesn't have uh, much oil. It already um, imports far more than 90% of, uh, of the oil it consumes. And the United States is only at 60%. And a lot of uh, the oil that the United States consumes comes from Canada, which is a neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have that in Germany. <laughs> so probably the mindset is different for a number of various reasons. And I think the, the key would be then to see not only what Germany is doing, but maybe also what can be copied, not necessarily whole hog, but um, copied and modified uh, and I'll give you one example of uh, something that uh, will also be very pertinent to California, uh, and one example of something that uh, just simply couldn't be copied. Um, Germany has uh, liberalized its, elect its um, energy markets. So uh, for gas and electricity, you have competition. Now, uh, you had a bit of a fiasco in California with this uh, just a few years ago, but things have gone extremely well in Germany. And um, part of that uh, success has really helped renewables enter the market. Uh, they, even small companies are able to compete eye to eye with the big players and the you know, former monopolists uh, who have vested interests in coal and nuclear, for instance. Um, so that's one thing that simply you couldn't, you couldn't come to the states now and say, okay, part of the deal if you, for, with a switch to renewables is deregulating your electricity markets uh, you're going to lose your audience if you do that. 
So you have to you have to take a look at what would need to be tweaked. Uh, but I, it's my conviction that um, a comparison would probably be very informative in terms of just looking at best practices around the world. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you touched upon uh, energy independence in your book, but is that something that uh, the Europeans are also uh, very concerned about? Um, I think there are two camps on this issue. Uh, one camp says that uh, energy independence is um, always going to be a myth. Uh, we're never going to really manage that. Uh, another camp um, on the other end of the spectrum says, uh, for instance, we have enough renewables in any country um, to um, sustain our own or, or pr uh, produce our own energy supply without any exports at all. And this is the camp that uh, says we can switch to 100% renewables uh, by, for instance, the year 2050. I'm a bit skeptical about uh, both of these um, extremes. I think, on the one hand, energy independence is something that uh, is, a, is a good goal in and of itself. Uh, we don't necessarily have to hit 100% on that target. The, mo the thing I'm most skeptical about is uh, biomass, because if we uh, switch to biomass completely for the transport sector, uh, what we're probably going to end up having is imports from um, other parts of the world. We'll have uh, the third world growing part of our energy crops, at least. And um, I think we're going to end up with a global conflict uh, similar to the one we have right now in agriculture, where um, countries in the first world, in the West, in Europe, Japan, and the United States, North America, um, we are eating... Um, a lot of fish, a lot of meat, and um, we are also fishing off the waters of Africa, and um, the, the fish catches for the local fishermen there have been plummeting in recent years, at least according to what I've read. Um, so I wonder if we are able to buy energy crops from, um, from Africa, for instance, or other parts of the world, uh, I wonder if they're going to be able to afford to grow their own food there. So I do see a conflict there. You know, you were talking about markets and how they um, perhaps played some of the leading roles in, in um, deploying these technologies. You know, one of the concerns is with the Middle East, they seem to have the power to arbitrarily raise or lower the price of oil. And if they can uh, keep it low enough, it seems there'll be no financial incentives for uh, you know, energy providers to develop renewables. Uh, do you see that as an uh, ongoing problem, or do you feel that the, uh, the influence of the, uh, the Middle East is waning? I think that I have recently switched to the camp of thinking that their influence is waning. And I'll give you an example of that. Paul Roberts is the author of the book The End of Oil. I think that came out in 2004, but it's only a few years old. And he describes basically what you're talking about and the mechanisms behind it and how a phone call between Riyadh and the White House, or Houston, um, just that phone call can uh, change the price of uh, a barrel on world markets. Um, I think probably what we're witnessing right now, since we have uh, a sustained price of a barrel at about between 60 and $70, and we've had that, I think, for about two years, I think basically those days look like they're over. I think Saudi Arabia is now... Um, producing at maximum, and um, I, I've, I've read some other experts um, who know more about this than I do. They're really oil men, and uh, they seem to be chiming in along the same lines and saying, uh, that was it, folks. We're, we're producing now. Uh, we're maxing out in production, so we're not going to be able to go back down to $20 a barrel short of some major uh, calamity that would uh, change the markets completely. 
All right, I guess we are running a little bit out of time here. Are, are there any uh, last words you'd like to add about yourself uh, or your book? About myself or my book? Well, um, my book does present um, a chapter on the uh, policies uh, between the states and Germany, so there is a comparison there. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, um, I guess in parting, I would just like to say I'm from New Orleans, and it's been a, a year, but it's uh, still on everyone's mind who's from there. And um, if you're suffering from Katrina fatigue or not, um, I would suggest that everybody uh, take a long weekend and just go down there and uh, enjoy the food, enjoy the music, and see for yourself uh, what happened and uh, maybe also what is not happening in terms of uh, rebuilding the city. Okay, great. Well, Mr. Morris, thanks so much for your time today. Okay, thank you. And we were just talking to Mr. Craig Morris, American journalist based in Germany. His book, Energy Switch, is now available across the nation and online. You can also check out his website, Petite Planet, www.petiteplanete.org. This is Berkeley Grox, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out why the fugu fish is so deadly, so stay tuned. some pretty interesting news from our fans, right? Yeah, well, I'm frankly shocked that we have any. <laughs> Me too. I don't even listen to this show. <laughs> I just recorded it and put it on the archive. <laughs> We're very flattered and honored to be interviewed by a group of students at the Fort Worth Academy of Fine Arts who have a nice science podcast of their own. And they're uh, based in Texas, is that right? right? Fort Worth? There might be a Fort Worth, Hawaii. I'm not sure. <laughs> but no, these are very intelligent young science students and yes, also performing artists there. Right. Art and science are pretty similar, right? It's the hidden muse of science. <laughs> or maybe science is the hidden muse of artists. Must be a reciprocal relationship. I'm not huh? sure if it's an if and only if. We're interviewed by the students. Quite a few of them, right? Quite a few of them, and really great questions. Very uh, insightful, in fact. Yes. <laughs> Got the tables turned on us. Again, we need to thank all the students for the great interview. Thanks go to... Aubrey. Nathan. Jennifer. David. Parker. Corey. And Levi. And, of course, the other teachers. Paulette and Timothy. Peta. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Especially to all of them for setting it up. And again, we enjoyed it quite a bit. And I believe it's going to be on their uh, podcast sometime, maybe December or... Sometime soon, I guess. Yeah. And if you want to check their whole website out, you can go to their website. Web.mac.com backslash science F-W-A-F-A. So that's one word. S-C-I-E-N-C-E-F-W-A-F-A. Right. So I guess that stands for Science Fort Worth Academy of Fine Arts. And they should add an S to that, I think, really. <laughs> Fort Worth Academy of Fine Arts and Science. Oh, Isn't that course. the important thing? Yeah. <laughs> so Skype was pretty cool, huh? I love Skype, you know. Best things in life are free, right? Right. So thanks a lot, guys, and wish you the best of luck with your podcast. And, and your arts, I guess. And your arts, and of course, everything that goes about from it. 
<laughs> Feel the power of Shao Kahn. Fugu fish. So deadly. Tetrodotoxin. And now, friendship. And boost me with this week's question of the week. You know, my tiger claw move is the deadliest secret in the kung fu world. But I have a deadlier secret, the panda's thumb. If you know what it is, or think you know what it is, email us at gorks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything. You can enter the dragon. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grok. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.